Welcome to the Faith Broadcast. I'm Carrick Butler, the pastor of Faith Christian Center. Thanks for tuning in today. We believe today's message is going to help you live this lifestyle of faith. It's going to empower you to live a life that makes Jesus famous wherever you go. Open up your heart. We know God has something special just for you. And we believe that as you listen to today's message, something good is going to happen to you. So listen up. I'll talk to you today at the end of our broadcast. Romans chapter 12, verse 1. It says, I beseech you, therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies a living sacrifice, holy, acceptable unto God, which is your reasonable, your worship, worship service. And be not conformed to this world, but be ye transformed by the renewing of your mind, that you may prove what is that good and acceptable and perfect will of God. The New Living Translation says it this way, And so, dear brothers and sisters, I plead with you to give your bodies to God because of all he has done for you. Let them be a living and holy sacrifice, the kind he will find acceptable. This is the way we truly worship him. And so our act of worship, an act of true worship, is how we live our life. It's not just the songs we sing, even though that's part of worship. It's how we live our lives. And so we just talked about the sacrifices that our mothers make for us. But that's not what this word sacrifice means here in Paul's original content. He's talking to an ancient group of people who were familiar with going to the temple and offering physical sacrifices. A physical sacrifice, when you offered it, you left it on the altar. Say, left it on the altar. How many know the high priest will look at you sideways if you put something on the altar, dedicate it to God, picked it up and walked away. How many know that? The purpose of bringing a sacrifice and dedicating it to God was bringing it to the altar and leaving it there. And so Paul uses the same imagery to talk about our lives. Because a lot of us will live dedicated, maybe even holy, on Sundays for the two hours to the two hour, 15 minutes I have you on this building. And we're like, this is my dedicated time with God. And so you act holy or holy mask on. I'm not talking about the COVID mask, but the other mask. And you say, well, this is my time with God. But then you act however else you want outside of this building. That's not what Paul's talking about. He's talking about living on the altar. That your life, your body belongs to God, as it says in 1 Corinthians 6. So you're living as a living sacrifice, as a person who stays on the altar of God, who sees their life, their soul, their body, and their spirit as being dedicated and belonging to God. A lot of Christians are good with being dedicated on Sunday, but a mess at being dedicated on Monday. Which means our mindset has to be renewed or renovated, as the scripture says. That's in the New Living Translation, it says it this way. Don't copy the behavior and customs of this world, but let God transform you into a new person by changing the way you think. Because when you were saved, your mind did not get saved. That's why some of you were kind of concerned that you came to the altar and you got saved. And we have those old gospel songs where it talks about how everything felt new. Your hands, your feet, your weave, your wig, all of that felt new. And that's great, but that's not true. When you came to the altar and gave your life to Jesus, the only thing that got saved was your spirit. You are a tripart being. You have a spirit, 
You are a spirit, you have a soul, which is your mind, will, and the control center of your emotions, and you live in this physical body. Your mind has to be renovated, and your body has to be controlled. The only thing saved about you is your spirit. What we call the salvation or the renovation of your mind or your soul is a process. And your physical body won't be saved until the day Jesus comes back. So until then, you have to renovate your mind and control your body. And the renovation of your mind is not something that just happens. Like, I've finally reached it. I have renovated my mind. I don't have to work on my mind for the rest of my days. Nope, nope, nope. That is a continual process. You work on the renovation of your mind until you see Jesus. Because even if you've done a good job renovating your mind so far, there's always something trying to get into your mind and affect the way you think. You have to learn to think for yourself based on the Word of God. Because if you don't think for yourself, somebody will do the thinking for you. And sadly, if they're doing the thinking for you, they may not have your best interest in mind. So that means you have to think for yourself based off the Word of God and think for yourself and not just blanketly agree with what every politician says, no matter your political party. Just go along with whatever you see on social media or the media. Well, if it's on TV, it must be true. How many know that is not true? How many know if it's on social media, it doesn't mean it's true? Even if it's a cute meme. That means we have to think for ourselves based off the word of God. We don't just jump into everything. We take time to process everything from the lens of the word of God and being led by the spirit of God. What does he have to say about the matter? Because if we don't and we just go on with the flow, how can we resist what is wrong? If we're really supposed to join the resistance, how can we resist the enemy if we just go with the flow of the world? Go to James chapter 4, verse 7. We have to continually check our thinking. As one of my friends, she's preached here before, Pastor Kylie Gatewood said, you have to take control of your thoughts. She says she even puts her hand on her head and says, that's not my thought. You have to be like that in your everyday life. You know, I was talking to my five-year-old yesterday, and we're preparing food for we had um, for Lady Raquel for this morning for her breakfast. And so we we're getting the things ready, and she was like, well... I would like that now, but it's too late. She says, my stomach is telling me I want it, but I didn't tell my stomach, no, she's not in charge. I'm like, well, that's how it works. Go ahead, good job. You can have one tomorrow. But we have to actually be like that. Because how many know your body will tell you stuff to do that you're not supposed to do right now? So you have to control the way you think. You have to control the way you feel because you have a soul. You are not a soul. You have a mind, you have a will, you have emotions. You're supposed to have emotions and not let your emotions have you. So that means we have to stay in control. James chapter four, verse seven. Submit yourselves therefore to God, resist the devil and he will flee from you. Notice before resisting the devil, there's submission to God. Because if you're not submitted to God, your resistance will be weak. If you're not submitted to God, your resistance will be weak because it's hard to resist someone when you agree with their lifestyle. How can you resist Satan when you agree with how he thinks and talks and lives? When we say submit, we mean yield to God's will. 
Yield to God's word. Yield to God's plan for your life. Believe what he has to say about the matter. I was ministering this morning in Fayetteville. The Holy Spirit put big emphasis on yielding to God's plan for your life. Because a lot of people say, well, I agree with the word. I agree with what God has to say about this. But what he wants me to do specifically seems kind of out there. No one in my family has ever done it before. I don't know anyone who's gone down this path. Maybe Moses, maybe God has, you know, I missed it and let me do something else. No. If we're going to submit to God, we have to be submitted to what he has told us to do. His plan for our life. Even if he has you study something or research something or be involved in something, it's like, I don't know how that's going to affect my everyday life. But it's in preparation. He's the God who sees and provides. So he'll direct you to do some things that you won't even need for 10 years or 20 years or 30 years. But you're so glad when that time comes, you're prepared. I remember last year we had to begin to shelter in place and figure out what to do. That when I began to edit and record and do all these things, all it for me was going back to college. Because my major in college was broadcast journalism. And so when I was taking that major, people think, well, why is Carrick majoring in broadcast journalism? We know he's called to preach. We know he's called to do this. But why is he majoring in that? See, it was a desire God put in my heart when I was in high school. And a desire to follow what he put in my heart. And so 12 years later, when the whole world shuts down, I know what to do. It felt like I went back to college. Like, oh, well, let's download this. Let's do this. And let's go to editing. I wouldn't know back then what the world was going to go through in 2020. But the Holy Ghost knew. And so he put this desire in my heart to study this, to be prepared for such a time as this. I'm so glad I study that then. Although it may not have made sense in the moment to everybody else, the Holy Ghost knows more than us. So there are some things the Holy Ghost will have you prepare or study or learn about. You say, well, that seems random, but it's not random. I remember something my grandma would tell me going up, said, God never wastes anything. Desire he's put in your heart. Talents he's given you, he'll bring it out at a later date. So don't discount how God has talented you. Don't discount what ability he's given you. Because he'll pull it out at a later date. It is your job to follow him step by step by step. Now some of you are planners. Who's like really good planners? You are just administratively gifted. You like to plan. If you could, you'd plan out every step of your next 10 years. God bless you all and that gifting that's upon your life. But... How many know when it comes to walking with God and walking by faith, God's not going to give you step A through Z and 1 through 1005. He may give you a couple steps or just one. And you're like, God, what about the rest? He's like, do that. Well, God, what about B, C, D, E? Do A. And you're not going to get the rest until you do A. Some of you have been praying, like, God, I need your direction. I need your wisdom. He's like, well, I haven't heard anything. Well, did you do the last thing he told you to do? Well, no, I didn't like it. Well, until you do that, you ain't going to get more instruction. You need it. Some of us just need to take some time and pray, like, Lord, what have I done? Or what have I haven't done that you told me to do? That's a good place to start. What do I need to update? What do I need to change? What did I forget about doing? Because sometimes we don't just not do it because of disobedience in our hearts, sometimes we just forget. How many of you know God has told you something and you just plumb forgot? Not from a bad place, like, you know, I forgot to write it down. And so, thank God for the Holy Ghost who brings all things to our remembrance.
And we ask, well, sir, is there something I forgot that I haven't done? Something that I need to do that you already told me about. And he'll lead you and he will guide you. We have to make sure we're submitted to his plan for our life. Because a lot of times, if he told you everything he wanted you to do, you get in unbelief real fast. You get in fear, worry, and anxiety real fast. Oh, I can't do that. Oh, God, I can't do that. I can't do that 20 years from now. One, you're not 20 years from now. Why are you worrying about what God's going to have you do in 2041 and it's 2021? You ain't going to even be the same person in 2041. But if he told you what you're going to do in 2041, a lot of you would quit in 2021. But understand, the Holy Ghost knows your future better than he knows your past. And he knows the process of development he's going to take you to so that when you get to 2041, you can stand strong. And when this comes up, it's nothing because he's prepared you for the last 20 years and beyond. But in order to do what you're supposed to do, you have to go step by step by step by step. What is that? That's walking in the Spirit. Being led by the Spirit. Following the steps he has for your life. We said in this series so far that to join the resistance, you have to make a stand against the enemy. Often it may make you seem like an alien to the culture, but you have to stand and live for God's ways anyways. When you make a stand for God, expect supernatural assistance. Too long we've expected the resistance and the drama and the attacks of the enemy. Oh, when you make a stand for God, Satan's going to attack. We all know that. So instead of meditating on the attack, Meditate on the assistance. Meditate how God's going to step in. Meditate on how God's going to show up and show out on your behalf. Meditate how he's going to treat you. That Even if you're thrown into the fire, the fourth man will jump in there in the midst of you. Meditate even if you get thrown into the lions, then God's going to send his angel and shut the mouths of the lion. Stop meditating on the drama, the attack, and meditate on the assistance that comes from heaven. Make that your focus. Make that your meditation. Make that your expectation. Too many of us are expecting the bad things instead of the goodness of God overflowing to the land of the living. We said if you're going to resist, you will need to represent and identify correctly. If you're going to resist effectively, you're going to need to represent and identify correctly. Because if you're still calling yourself an old sinner saved by grace, it's going to be hard for you to resist sin. Why? You just identified as a sinner. And God doesn't call you a sinner even when you sin. He says you are the righteousness of God in Christ Jesus. That is who you are, and that's how you have to identify if you expect to be effective in your resistance. We also said you must have faith in God's ability concerning vengeance and recompense. You must have faith in God's ability concerning vengeance and recompense. Because vengeance and recompense are vitally important to the success of the resistance. Vengeance and recompense are vitally important to the success of the resistance. Too many of God's people are taken advantage of because they don't make room for God's vengeance. Too many of God's people are taken advantage of because they don't make room for God's vengeance and his recompense. You don't make room for it because sometimes you try to, it's like, I'm going to get them back my way. I'm going to handle it my way. I'm going to handle this, Jesus. You move too slow. I got this. And you miss out on the vengeance and the recompense of the Lord. Or you may not try to get them back and say, oh, I forgave them, but you're mad at them for the rest of your life. You're not really in forgiveness. But when you move out the way and actually hand it over to God, his vengeance and his recompense can get involved. See, a lot of the restoration a lot of us have been believing for since last year, and the harvest we were believing for the year before that comes in the form of recompense. 
God making things right in your life. Most of you don't know everything that's been stolen from you and every wrong that has done to you. And it's good that you don't know because if you knew everything, a lot of you would be still bitter. But God knows everything that was done to you, everything that was stolen from you, and he wants to recompense you. God also knows everything that was done to your parents and your grandparents, your great-grandparents, all through your ancestry who have not received the recompense, and he wants to bring that recompense into your life. I still remember, I think I was 14, we went to go hear Brother Copeland on the south side of town who was preaching. And you know, if you've ever heard Brother Copeland preach, he doesn't preach short messages. I don't know if I've ever heard him preach a short message. I think short for him, the shortest I've ever heard him preach is like an hour. So this is one of the nights, it might have been like two hours, two hours plus, who knows how long. Not the whole service, just his message. And in the message, he talked about being the captain of your inheritance. He said, you need to begin to talk about things being restored to you in your lifetime that were stolen from those in your ancestry. So I began saying since I was 14, I am the captain of my inheritance. Things that were denied to those who came before me, either because of the wickedness of men or because of ignorance, are restored to me in my lifetime. Why? God is a God of vengeance and recompense. He's a God of justice. It's not about getting something back. It's about making things right. And if you move out the way, God can make things right in your life. Because most of the stuff that is held back is not being held back by people, but it's being held by, back by wicked spirits in the heavenlies. And no matter how you stay mad and how much you yell and scream, that is not going to make it come out. But when you take a step back and decide to live God's way, allow God to be God, he can execute vengeance and recompense on your behalf so everything that's been held back to you hits your life. So instead of passing down generational curses, you pass down generational blessings. Instead of your child fighting the same fault you fought, it's already won. And instead of passing down a fight, you pass down victory. But you're going to have to forgive everybody of everything. Like, really forgive them. Really let it go. Really get out the way. And not just forgive them. Stop talking bad about them. And stop rehearsing it. Too many of us have stuff that's happened and we rehearse it. Or Marilyn Hickey said you rehearse it and you nurse it. And so, yes, it might have happened 20, 30, 40, 50, 60, 70, 80 years ago. But to you, it happened five minutes ago. Because all those decades you've been rehearsing and rehearsing and rehearsing and rehearsing, not just in your mind, but in your words. And so it's hard for you to actually live in forgiveness because you have rehearsed and nursed this thing. So now it is the dominating influence of your life. You actually have to let it go. You actually have to say out of your mouth, I forgive everybody of everything. And when that thought comes back, say, nope, I forgave them. Nope, I let it go. I'm not going to be angry. The scripture tells us, don't let the sun go down on our wrath which means you have less than 24 hours to be angry. Being angry is not a sin. Staying in anger is. So, well, Pastor, what happens if I get angry the next day? You remind yourself, nope, I forgave them, I let it go. What happens if it comes back? You remind yourself, I forgave them, I let it go. How often do I need to do this? Until you stop being angry. And sometimes you might have to challenge your flesh. Like, look, flesh, if you keep being angry, I'm going to be a blessing to that person. I'm going to buy them something. I'm going to spend my hard-earned money on them. Your flesh gets quiet real quick. Because your flesh don't want you to spend your money on somebody who did you wrong. So you can't be focused on getting people back. I know you may have advanced degrees in pettiness, but that is not what God has called you to major in. Be not overcome with evil, 
but overcome evil with good. Don't focus on getting people back. God said, vengeance is mine. I will repay. So you do what God has called you to do. You live the way God has called you to live, and you make room for the vengeance and recompense of God. Because to resist effectively, you need God's vengeance. You need God's recompense. Go to Matthew chapter 5, verse 13. Matthew chapter 5, verse 13. Matthew chapter 5, verse 13. It says, you are the salt of the earth, but if the salt has lost its savor or its flavor, wherewith shall it be salted? It is therefore good for nothing but to be cast out and to be trodden under the foot of men. You are the light of the world. A city that is set on a hill cannot be hid. Neither do, many, neither do men light a candle and put it under a bushel, but on a candlestick and gives light unto all that are in the house. Let your light so shine before men that they may see your good works and glorify your Father who is in heaven. So we talked about this week, we'll talk about more next week, about what it means to be the light of the world. But let's focus, like we did last week, on being the salt of the earth. Jesus says, if you lose your saltiness, what good are you? What good is salt if it loses saltiness? It's no good to keep it around, you just throw it out, and it's walked on. We said last week that salt is a food preservative and a flavoring agent. It has been used to preserve food for many thousands of years and is a common seasoning. And the food we eat, salt also plays a role in providing flavor and texture and enhancing color. Many disease-causing bacteria are unable to grow in the presence of salt. But if we lose our saltiness and dim our light, we cannot accomplish our job as a resistance. If we lose our saltiness and dim our light, we cannot accomplish our job as a resistance. The less salty you are, the less light you shine, the less effective is your resistance. And so we began to look at what is the root of our resistance? Because to submit yourselves to God, resist the devil, and he will flee from you. The word flee means to run in stark terror. It means to try to escape your presence. So if Satan is not trying to escape your presence, maybe your resistance is not effective. If Satan is not trying to escape your presence, maybe your resistance is not effective. And it may not be because you're not resisting. It just means the root of your resistance may have been called into question. We talked about fear a lot last week. And analyzing our heart, analyzing our lives. Are we making decisions out of wisdom or out of fear? We looked at the scripture in Hebrews where it talks about how the word of God is sharper than any two-edged sword and what it can cut through, soul, spirit, bones, sinew, the thoughts and the deliberations of the heart. And so the word of God will expose in your heart, are you making decisions out of wisdom or out of fear? And if we're not cautious, fear will put on a suit and look like wisdom. Because a lot of times we've been focused on resisting fright instead of just resisting fear. Fright is that emotion of that panic that comes upon you when you're afraid. You feel that. You feel panic. You feel anxiety. We have grown accustomed to resisting the feelings associated, but not dealing with the root. Because fear affects your planning. Fear affects your directions. Fear affects what you do and why you do what you do. 
Fear is attached to your motive. And when we talk about in the series, building a life that stands the test of time and being stable during unstable times, if the foundation of your wall is weak, your wall will fall. And I want to tell you, if the motive or the root of your resistance is compromised, your resistance won't be effective. You know, there's an old Pentecostal saying I was told years ago, keep your rivers pure. The scriptures tell us that from our lives flow rivers of living water. So we should keep our rivers pure, right? But if one of the reasons we make decisions is out of fear, that means even all the good things we do, it's going to be contaminated with fear. Think about some of the ways we teach and train our children. So many of us have said, you know, look both ways because you cross the street, because if you don't, I'm afraid you're going to get hit by a car. Why do we have to put fear in there? Why do we say wisdom says look both ways because you cross the street? Cars do come down there, but if you look both ways, you're not going to get hit. Why does fear even have to be in the conversation? And we want to teach wisdom and caution and direction to our children, but in all of that, guess what's also being passed down? Fear. We have to analyze as we make decisions going forward. How do we operate in this new world? A world that was already afraid but now overflowing with fear. How do we make decisions going forward? You need to make sure it's from wisdom and not fear. How do you know that? You get in the Word, you spend time before the Holy Spirit of God. You spend time praying. You spend time meditating on the love of God. So things that are deep down get brought up. Because there are some things you may be afraid of and you never knew you were afraid of. I remember years ago, there was, I remember, it was, yep, there's another story with the brother couple. He was preaching on fear and the love of God. And he started preaching on that after 9-11, and he preached on it for a few years. This is like the first generation iPod just came out. I downloaded every single message he had on the topic. And I listened to it again and again and again and again and again. And most of the messages were on how much God loves you. And so as I began to meditate, fear, things that were in me that I didn't know were fear began to leave. Some things I knew about, some things I didn't. And so I didn't realize that I had a slight fear of heights. Not so much when I flew, but when it came to other things. But as I meditated on how much God loved me, I even wanted to do roller coasters. The roller coasters I had no desire to do just a few years ago. My brothers can testify, I had no desire doing those roller coasters. And I didn't know the root was fear. So throughout my 20s, I did all these roller coasters. Now I'm in my 30s, I can do it, I just don't choose to. <laughs> it's like, nah, that, that doesn't look fun to me at all. Now I'll tell my oldest, hey, I'll do at least one with you, maybe two, but after that, I'm good. But I would have never known it was fear-rooted until I spent time thinking about how much God loves me. I got so free, probably concerned my family, that I was like, you know what, I might want to go skydiving now. And they looked at me and said, you want to do who? <laughs> I said, yeah. So I'll do it maybe at least once. But what was holding me back for anything in that area? It was fear. But I wouldn't have known until I spent time meditating on the love of God. So I encourage you to do that because there may be some things directing your life that you think is wisdom that's actually fear. And when that, if the resistance, the wall of resistance you put up is rooted in fear, when Satan comes at it, that wall will bow to him. Why? 
Anything rooted in fear will bow to its master, the spirit of fear. Why would the wall you created out of fear resist the spirit of fear? Even if you've done the wise thing in saving money, but you saved out of fear, you wonder, why is my money running out? Why does it keep going, going, going? Is the root of that bank account fear? The scripture tells you to say, the scripture tells you the wise person does these things. The scripture says the unwise person spends everything that comes to their hands. So there's wisdom and scriptural standpoint to save and have bank accounts. I want you to catch that. But you need to make sure you're doing it out of wisdom, not fear. Well, I'm afraid that this might happen, I won't have enough money. Or this might happen, I'm afraid. Whoa. Check the root. Check the foundation. Don't just resist the fright, resist the fear. And the only way you can do that is by meditating on the love of God and spending time with God every day. Another thing that the Holy Ghost brought out a couple weeks ago at the end of the message, he began to reveal that some people are doing good things, but their motive is off. It's not because it, they're a bad person. It's because they're trying to prove themselves to somebody who told them they were worthless when they were a child. They're doing all these good things to be somebody because someone told them they would never be anybody. And so they're doing all these good things. They're living these good lives. They're being a blessing. They're having an influence. But all those things are contaminated and limited because the root is not the right root. The root is I'm so concerned that they might be right. So I'm going to work my tail off the rest of my life to prove them wrong. And you may do a lot of good things, but the good things you do will be limited and contaminated because the root is wrong. We do good things because we're the light of the world. We do good things because we're the salt of the earth. We do good things because we love God and we love people. That has to be our root, not to prove something to somebody. They aren't your God. And although they may have said some things that were wrong and spoke those curses over your life, they are wrong. You are somebody. You are such a somebody that Jesus came and died for you and shed his blood. You are worth it to God. You are worth it in the court of heaven. Don't let their words determine your life. Don't let what they said to you in your past determine your future. Stop giving them that influence. You are who God says you are. You are the righteous of God in Christ Jesus. You are the apple of his eye. You are worth the blood of Jesus being shed for. We have to make sure the root of what we do is right. If we want our resistance to be effective. So we have to make sure it's not fear, unforgiveness, trying to prove ourselves to somebody. Or as we're about to talk about now, shame. Go to Hebrews chapter 12. Is the root of what we do guilt or shame? Hebrews chapter 12. Let's look at verse 1. Hebrews chapter 12. Verse 1. Wherefore, seeing we are also compassed about with so great a cloud of witness... Let us lay aside every weight and the sin which has so easily beset us, and let us run with patience or patient endurance the race that is set before us, looking unto Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is set down at the right hand of the throne of God. 
For consider him that endured such contradiction of sinners against himself, lest you be wearied and faint in your minds. That word despising means to think little of. That word for despising means to think little of. Jesus thought little of the shame that was associated with the cross, which is the most humiliating and shameful punishment that could be implemented by the Roman world. There was shame associated with the cross. Even the law said, cursed is everyone that hangs on the tree. There was a curse and shame associated with the cross and the death Jesus was to die. But it says he thought little of the shame, which means shame was present. Whatever Jesus bore for us is our job to resist. Whatever Jesus bore for us, it is our job to resist. He bore our sin till we resist sin, right? He bore sickness and disease, so we resist sickness and disease, right? He bore our shame, so we resist shame. You have nothing to be ashamed of. Because the root of shame is guilt. The root of shame is guilt. Romans 9.33 says, As it is written, Behold, I lay in Zion a stumbling stone and a rock of offense, and whosoever believes on him shall not... What is that? Shall not what? Come on, put it in the chat online. Shall not what? Romans 8.1 There is therefore now no condemnation to them which are in Christ Jesus, who walk at, not after the flesh, but after the spirit. So if you're in Christ Jesus, walking after the spirit, there is no condemnation. None whatsoever. None. Notice what it says in Romans 4.25. It talks about Jesus who was delivered for our offenses and was raised again for our justification. What was Jesus raised for? Our justification. Justification means to be declared not guilty. He died for our sins and was raised for us to be declared not guilty. So when the court of heaven looks at you, believer, it says not guilty. You are not some old sinner saved by grace. You are the righteous of God in Christ Jesus. You are saved by grace. God does not see you as guilty. But if you view yourself for the rest of your life as guilty, you won't live to the fullness of what Jesus purchased for you. You are not guilty. Say, I am not guilty. Some of you had a hard time saying it. Say it one more time. Say, I am not guilty. Go ahead and put that in the chat online. I am not guilty. Say, Pastor, you don't understand what I did. Even the courts of this land have said I am guilty. I know I did it. They know I did it. Society knows I did it. But you know what? Heaven has something else to say. Because the blood of Jesus washed away your sins. Did it not? Does the blood work? Does anybody have a testimony that the blood of Jesus works? It washed away your sins and washed away your guilt. When you get to heaven, there is no book that contains all your sins. Some of you think when you stand before the judgment seat of Christ, God can go over the list of all the bad things you've done. He's like, ooh, Jesus, that's going to take a long time. But why would God record your mistakes and your failures and your sin and your iniquity in heaven when he washed away your sins? 
that seems counterproductive. That seems counterintuitive. And God is the most wise person that's ever existed. Why would he record your sins if he sent his son to wash away your sins? So when you stand at the judgment seat of Christ and you give an account for what you've done in your body, it's not talking about the wrong things you've done. It's talking about what you got right. When you yielded to God, you yielded to grace, you obeyed the Spirit of God. What is it? Reward time. So, well, Pastor, what if I did nothing right? Well, you get in. So that's those saved by fire, like someone who got out of the fire and saved their life but lost their whole house. They said, well, you made it. Well, barely, but you got in. But he's not going to go over all the bad things you've done. Why? The blood did its job. Say, the blood did its job. Go ahead, put that in the chat. The blood did its job. So when God looks at you, he says, not guilty. That's how God sees you. Guilt produces shame. See, I saw this quote. It talks about shame is seeing ourselves as failures because of what we have done. Shame is feeling bad about who we are. Shame is a sense of failure in someone else's eyes. Shame is how others perceive us or how we see ourselves. Guilt produces shame. And so God has done away with your guilt. So you need to do away with your shame because Jesus bore your shame. If he bore it, you resist it. You have no reason to be ashamed. Say, Pastor, but what have I done? Have you confessed it? Yeah, you have no reason to be ashamed. You have no reason to feel guilty. That means you resist feelings of guilt. Because the enemy will try to remind you about all the bad things you've done. You'd be trying to go to bed at night and say, well, don't you remember 40 years ago when you lied in that second grade class? What? He would try to do anything to make you feel guilty. To bring that guilt awareness to your life. Or to bring, as it's called, sin consciousness. Because if you're always conscious about sin, you know what you're going to do? Sin. But if you're conscious about righteousness, you know what you're going to do? Righteous things. You have to make sure the good things you do are not rooted in shame. There are some people who go far beyond doing what is right and needed, not because out of love, but because they're ashamed about something that happened in their past. Or ashamed about something that was done to them, ashamed of something they participated in. And so now they're doing all these wonderful things, but the root is shame. Trying to be a good parent, but the root is shame. Trying to make a difference in this community, but the root is shame. But if the root is shame, what you do is going to be contaminated. If the root is your guilt, what you do is going to be contaminated. And most likely, if the root is guilt and shame, what you do, even for the kingdom, will come off harsh. Well, how do you know that? The parable Jesus told about the man who was forgiven $20 million. Anybody remember that story? That he came before the king says, give me more time. I will repay all. And it says the king was moved with compassion. We see that talking about how Jesus in the gospel says he was always moved with compassion. And he forgave the debt. He canceled the debt. Forgiveness is a financial term. He freed him from his debt. He freed him from owing $20 million. Think about how much you got to do to owe 20 million dollars. He forgave him. He canceled it. But what was the first thing that man did? 
he ran to the person who owed him 20 bucks, grabbed him by the neck and shook him, says, pay me what you owe me. And the guy said, give me more time and I will pay you all. And he refused. And he might say, well, he refused because he's a bad person. I don't believe he's a bad person. I just don't believe he believed he was forgiven. Because why would the first thing you do was try to go get some money because you need to pay somebody back? Instead of thinking he was forgiven, he thought he just had some more time to pay a debt. And there are too many Christians who are living like they're trying to pay God back and pay a debt that they think they owe to God. And so they preach holiness from a harsh place. They preach righteousness from a harsh place. They preach the fruit of the Spirit from a harsh place. They preach obedience from a harsh place. Because in the back of their mind, the back of their soul, down to the depths of their heart, they don't believe they're forgiven. And if you don't believe you're forgiven, you'll do the right things from the wrong motives and you wonder why your house doesn't stand. You are forgiven. The blood did its job. God is not holding things over your head. People might, but God doesn't. You really have to believe you're forgiven if you can go far in the kingdom of God. Because God's not going to bring up your past. If he did not bring up the Apostle Paul's past, why would he bring up yours? The Apostle Paul before Jesus was a terrorist. Killed and jailed Christians. Led the charge of persecuting the church of God. But Jesus never brought up his past again. He appeared to him and says, it's hard for you to kick against the bricks. I am Jesus whom you're persecuting. And after that, Paul changed. At that one encounter, his past was never brought up again. Paul would bring it up, but Jesus never did. Why would Jesus bring up your past? You're not guilty. In the eyes of God, you don't have a past. Think about this. When a new baby is born, everybody's taking pictures and admiring the beauty of the new baby. What if someone came up and says, oh, that's a beautiful baby, but what about their past? You think, this dude, what about their past? They were just born. They don't have a past, and neither do you. The blood did its job. You are the righteousness of God in Christ Jesus. You need to see yourself as forgiven. You need to see yourself as righteous. You need to see yourself as holy. You need to see yourself as submitted to God, not as some old sinner saved by grace. Because the blood has done its job. And if you focus on this instead of all the bad things you've done, you'll live the way you're supposed to live. The blood has done its job. Say, the blood has done its job. So don't be motivated by shame anymore. You don't have to pay a debt. You may say, but what, what about all those wonderful things God did for me? It was a gift. It tells us salvation is a gift. You are saved by grace. It is the gift of God. Ephesians 2, 8, right? Salvation is a gift. If someone gives you a gift and you receive it, do you owe them something? Why? It's a gift. If you owe them certain something, it's a wage. It's something you have to earn. Salvation cannot be earned. It's a gift you receive by faith. So that means once you receive the gift of God, once you receive salvation, you do not owe God anything. Some of you, that shocks the religionists out of you. You do not owe God anything. Why? It 
was a gift. And if you do things out of debt, thinking you owe God, trying to make it up to him, it comes off harsh. Because you're still trying to pay back what you owe. That means deep down you really don't believe that you're actually forgiven. You're forgiven. So why do we do what is right? Not because we owe God, but because we love God. If God did all that for us, Paul says, it just makes sense for us to live for him. If he died for us, Paul says, it just makes sense to live for the one who died for us. If he did all that, it just makes sense we should live as a living sacrifice. Not because we owe God, but because we love him. Why do we do what is right? Because we love God and we love others. And we love ourselves. That is the root of why we do what is right. Love. Because if that is the root, fear cannot hold on. Love has to be the root. And here's another good root that we can talk about as we close since Mother's Day. Ephesians 6 to paraphrase it. Honor. It says, honor your father and mother. Honor. It says, honor the Lord with all your substance. The first fruit of increase. Honor. God is big on honor. Honor is a good root. You'll do certain things like, well, do you feel like doing it? No. Well, why are you doing it? Honor. So that means sometimes you have to research how another person receives honor. How does your spouse receive honor? How do your parents receive honor? How does your spiritual leadership receive honor? How do other people in your life receive honor? You research those things and you do it because honor is a good root that produces a good fruit. So we need to make sure that we do things out of love, out of honor, out of submission to God, not out of fear, not out of shame, not out of guilt, not out of regret, but of love and honor. Because as we do that, we'll, be wall, we'll build walls that are actually effective in resisting the enemy. That as we live rooted and grounded in love, as the scripture says, and we live showing honor, as the scripture tells us to do, Satan will try to escape our presence when we resist. We're supposed to honor each other. It says, don't think of each other, don't think of yourself more highly than you ought. What is more highly than you ought when you look down on others? But you ought to think highly of yourself. It talks about preferring one another. What is that? Showing them honor. That you know, if everybody in this building went above and beyond, and everybody online went, went above and beyond with honoring each other, people would just want to be around us. Because like, yeah, you get around those faith people, they just, they know how to love and honor. It's weird. I've never seen anything like that. They just actually love people. That's so strange in 2021. They think about other people before they think about themselves. It's magnetic. It's attractive. It's Bible. So if we make what we do rooted in love and honor, we'll be able to resist the enemy and not just take our resistance on the defensive, but take it on the offensive. And he'll try to escape our presence wherever we go. We need to make sure the resistance that we're implementing is rooted correctly. Stand to your feet. Thank you, Lord Jesus. Lift your hands. Close your eyes. Examine your heart.
Examine your why. Why are you doing what are you doing? I'm not talking about negative things. Why are you doing what is right? Why are you doing the good things you are doing? What is the root? As I went through this message, the Holy Spirit's been putting his finger on things. That if that root is not right, just ask him to help you get it right. Ask him to forgive you for the wrong motives and help you have the right motives. He can change the motive just like that. And that the good things you do going forward are now a hundredfold more effective. But you have to examine your why right now. You have to examine your own heart right now. Before the Spirit of God, don't hide anything. He already sees it. Your hiding is counterproductive. And areas you need help, just ask him to help you. He will. He's called the helper, the paraclete. He'll help you today. He'll help you do things rooted in love and rooted in honor and help you maintain that root the rest of your days. So, Father, I pray that you heal hearts that need to be healed because of the pain of the past. You said you're anointed to heal our broken hearts, so I trust you to do that right now with everyone that's in this room, everybody watching online, everybody who watched the replay, where your healing power to flow into hearts to restore souls right now and help us to have the right motives so we don't lose our saltiness and we don't dim our light. We thank you for it. We thank you for it. We thank you for it. Hallelujah. Hallelujah to Jesus. Hallelujah to Jesus. We thank you. We thank you. We thank you. Oh, we thank you. Hallelujah. Thanks for watching today. We hope today's message was a blessing to you that empowered you to make Jesus famous in every area of your life. Hey, if you want to be a part of what God's doing here at Faith, you know, our vision statement is to ignite an awakening that impacts Georgia and influences the world through the power of the love of Jesus. And we'd love for you to be a part. You can find out our different experience times and our different locations by going to FCCGA.com. If you want to give, you can text FCCGA to 73256. You can also go to FCCGA.com to give online and be a part of what God's doing here. We'd love to see you anytime you're in our area. We believe God has something good just for you. And anytime you come to our faith experience, we believe you will experience God and his plan for your life. So thank you for tuning in today. We'll see you next time.